Heron. Hello, Tom. So, it seems like you have some stuff to talk about, and I have some stuff to talk about, so why don't we start with your stuff? Oh, um, well, I, I just sent you that little graphic. I it was exploring the ad space on on Facebook, and uh, and I'm, how much did it cost you to try that for a month? Thirty bucks, you said, or 30 something. Thirty bucks, yes. Yeah, I might I might explore that myself. Actually, that's an interesting uh, that intrigued me. So okay. I, that was my potential ad. I'm just curious, you know, what you think of it. Okay, so it, let let me read it out to the uh, to the listeners. So the the link title is Gendo Way of Language. Then there's the uh, the Gendo symbol. Eliminate obstacles to waking up from the language-induced hypnotic trance humans mistake for reality. Yeah. That's the copy. Yeah. So what have you learned from our discussion so far about Facebook ads? Uh, Not to expect a whole hell of a lot. (laughs) I would disagree. I would disagree completely, because what I've learned from the experience of putting my money up is that there are the way that you word it is the critical part. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, for example, in the case of Model Rail Radio, although I'm pretty clear I probably won't continue to run the ads, it has been a roughly 31 to 29 cents per click-through uh, you know, yeah. versus you know, one fifty to one fifteen to you know, eighty cents for various other misshapen ads. But I think the thing that I've learnt is that the wording is critical, and you need to catch people initially with something that is familiar to them or intriguing to them. I'm thinking my symbol goes a long way. For, again, and I don't think most people are, are even slightly the right people for what I'm doing, but for the people that I'm interested in, I'm thinking that symbol will certainly get their attention. So I guess my question to you is, um, it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy the way you've described it, and I guess my concern is that there are probably... I was listening to your conversation with the fellow who talks to check out people about the financial system as a means of converting them. Hmm. And the thing that strikes me, certainly in a wide variety of the folk that I talk to, uh, in particular in this country, is that people are actually quite savvy associated with how disconnected the, you know, the finances of the country are from any you know, real notion of currency or value or gold or these kind of things. I don't think, you know, you hang around, see, this is where you hang around a very different group of people than I think is even anyway close to what most Americans do or think. You you operate in a very uh, high-level arena. Well, I put to you that the U.S. is the only country that I know of that does basic finance as part of the general studies curriculum, probably for middle school and high school. And my understanding through the way that is taught is that there is some explanation of currency akin to the description that the fellow offered. Well, your experience is very different than mine. Whatever they may be teaching, I don't think people get it. And the way it's taught in the school system is that it's the greatest thing that ever happened. Well, it means that you can create value from nothing. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's that scene is a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that people are unaware of the circumstances that create their uh, fiscal reality, for want of a better term. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think our audiences, for whatever we're talking about, I mean, obviously, model rail radio has a very well-defined audience. Yeah, yeah, that's and, beautiful. You know, I'm, I'm working to that. Yeah. So I, I understand that. In fact, I experience it every other week. The most recent recording was just shy of five hours long. <laughs> oh, uh, man. With 12 people calling in to the just complete full chat room. So oh, that's yeah, great. That's it's great. It's become a thing in and yeah. of itself. Yeah. And, it'll, and that'll only get better, too. Oh, because, yeah. You know, that's just yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm warning my co-host, actually, because he did the majority of the last show, that he yeah. may actually start feeling burnout-related symptoms. Particularly. Yeah, you're going to have to start looking at staffing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on from it. So yeah. my view is that there is a framing issue that could open, and you're right, there isn't exactly the right group of people, and that may just be 15 or 20 people. But I think what you're probably talking to, to a greater extent with the notion of a Facebook ad, is just getting people that may be kind of casually interested with the view that the more that they learn, the may that the, the um, more they may. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I think it's a small percentage. I don't know what it is. I think probably that I'd like to talk to maybe uh, 5% of, mm. of the people that I see day in and day out at Starbucks and where I work and mm. in the markets and, you know, uh, my sense is now in your group of people, it's probably closer to fifty percent. So uh, here's here's an idea associated with the comfort zone, and it's something we talked about last time. The new name for this podcast. I was floated via the Facebook group, via direct mail, via a wide variety of means, a number of names, and the only name that really stuck with me, mainly because it made me laugh and it made me think, yeah, that's about right, mm-hmm. was. The two Scrooges. <laughs> That's good. The two Scrooges. <laughs> or curmudgeons would be better. I like that uh, word better. Well, I do too, but Scrooges, I think you got the three Stooges. It sounds like the three Stooges. Exactly. Yeah, it's got that going for it's, it. It's right. still that the play. Two, the two Scrooges. So, <laughs> That's good. I like it. <laughs> so my point about that is, is that that has nothing to do with any with of anything, the stuff yeah. Well, previous. I, no, but it does, because we are both curmudgeonly <laughs> in many ways. That's why curmudgeon is a better word, but sure. uh, Scrooge is... Uh, close enough in attitude exactly. uh, you know and um yeah i think it's right on <laughs> so I'm, I'm planning on changing the name of the podcast in the new year to that but i wouldn't uh, make it the two i would just say two stooges not the two scrooges scrooges oh scrooges oh without the two. Oh, that's even better no 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 no, no. two oh no you said stooges twice and i just wanted to reinforce that it was scrooges not stooges Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Stooges, Scrooges. Yeah. Yeah, um Yeah, just two Scrooges. Or maybe just Scrooges. <laughs> Scrooges works. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, my point it, about because it, it's not always us two, it's you and someone else, Thanks. but they're probably not nearly as Scroogey as you and I are. <laughs> yes. I'm still, there's a background project to this. I'm still trying to lure Brandon DiCamello in for a conversation, and he's actually corresponding with me currently about other things. So that recording may happen before the end of the year. But back to this, back to this uh, 
Gendo way of language stuff. This is all about your comfort zone, Heron. I don't think it's got anything to do with bringing new folk in. I think it's to do with your comfort zone. It's to do with the way that you framed the way you think this thing should be. And it's got nothing about actually bringing people in. It's more about what is familiar to you and comfortable to you about the way that you talk about it. But you need to move from your comfort zone with these kind of ads. Okay, so what would you suggest? So it's always better to start with a positive and not a negative. So let's look at eliminate obstacles to waking up from the language-induced hypnotic trance humans mistake for reality. That, to me... That's in your face, yes. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even in your face. It's, it's, it's obscure, ambiguous, and not really... I mean, no, but see, it's not at all. That's the thing is, for some people, they see that and they get it immediately. Well, this is the point. The point is to have had a talk with you and to have had six months' worth of conversation with you, mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying there. But for a general person in the you know, Facebook community that's looking at you know, yeah. photos of parties or book clubs or what but, have you... But I'm not, that, I don't want them in my room. See, that's exactly <laughs> the point. If that's how they spend their time, they're not the kind of person who's going to be interested in what I'm doing. The kind of... Well, you see, I think you're selling yourself short here, Heron. I think basically you have such a fine view, very much reinforced by by your, your own perspective mm -hmm. about the kind of person that would be interested in this. And the thing I will say for the fellow uh, who uh, talked... Let me, let me go a little further. Not only am I interested in someone who's be interested in listening to it, I'm interested in someone who's actually going to get it, not someone who's merely coming by to be entertained with some interesting ideas. I've done that. I've done seminars. I've trained couple thousand people over the years, and they all had a wonderful time and enjoyed it, and maybe... A half a dozen of them actually got it. Mm. See, and I'm not. I'm tired of entertaining people who want who come for uh, to hear some interesting new ideas, and it, they have no intention of actually applying anything to change their lives. And I'm mm. not interested in talking to them. So I guess my question to you is: Is a Facebook ad then the right kind of vehicle for you to track the people that you're looking for? Oh, I don't know. I just you started. Like I said, I have no idea about this. You introduced me to the concept, mm -hmm. and I like the idea. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And so let's let's. So let's, I'm just really experimenting yeah. here. I don't know I what to do with it. Okay. So eliminate obstacles to waking up from the. What you're saying yeah, is wake up. Wake up. From ah, the yeah, you know, very good, very good. You're right. I'm being really pedantic in there, and I probably don't need to be pedantic. Okay. And good, it does, it's, good, good. Thank you, Tom. That's, that's good. What's the difference between a hypnotic trance and just a trance? Wake up okay. from the language. Ah, okay, all right. God, thank you, Tom. Tom, you're doing you, great. Keep it not up. humans. You mistake you, yeah, for the animal. That's right. You're absolutely right. You, you know, amen, <laughs> brother. Now, we could get it even tighter than that. Let okay, me, hold let me, on. Let me, I, I need to actually write yeah, this I need out. to do the same on my end as well. I'm writing down your copy here, Heron. Okay, That's wake awesome. up. From the uh, well, language-induced... What does language? Well, I guess language and language kind of language is important, but maybe okay. not. We can just get rid of all those and see and start from there, and then add them if we have. Why do we to. call it a language trance as opposed to a language induced trance? Uh, listen, Tom, do what the hell you want to do. Write it any way you want. I'm interested to see what you're going to come up with. See, 
Mistake is also probably the wrong... No, you're word. right, yeah, yeah. Uh, wake up from the language trance. You call reality. No, call perhaps... No, that's okay, no. That's not okay. That's, I had that actually at one time. <laughs> Very uh, good. Very good. So I think there are possibilities here, and why don't we do this as a kind of continued workshop? Because I need to. The, the first thing is. Hold on, uh, I want. I just want to make sure I, you and I have the same thing. Wake okay. up from the language trance you call reality. Yes. Oh, I love it, man. I love it. That's great. <laughs> so we've shown the copy. Oh yeah, that's so much better. Oh, Isn't yeah. it? So, Gendo way of language. That's the, your objections to your name being used in a title is. Uh, I mean, Gendo, this is a brand that you want to put out there. I understand that concept in terms yeah. of being a, a brand identity. Yeah. However... That, yeah, the logo and the name Gendo are central to uh, putting this into the world, I think. Maybe what? not, but I'm... I'm con- I'll What's the kanji? In the, is the kanji Gendo? Is that what the kanji is? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I think... Similar to when I used, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, my success with um, board with old media has not been as great, but it was certainly better than Stone Ape. And Stone Ape, there was the name. So I think the link should be something else okay. rather than um, Gendo way of language, because that's All really right. your branding. But I think this should be a running project because now you've introduced it to me. I, I think I need some time to think about it. Okay. All right. But yeah, you, I'm in no hurry. Like I say, this is just, you know, you showed me what you were doing and, and, <laughs> and we were looking at the results and the kind of response. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I can <laughs> use that. <laughs> you know, so I came up with this. I went to the page and went through it and, and <laughs> came up with this, that. And, and yours is so much better, man. Wake up from the language trance you call reality. That's good. <laughs> I may put language-induced trance, but, yeah, it, like I said, it's my, my tending towards professorial speech. <laughs> well, this fits into one of my topics. Do you have other topics you want to float, or should we roll into mine and then roll back into yours? I'm, oh, how I'm about a... drugs? As a topic? Yeah. Okay. Or, or as a substance. To... Yeah. Um, I just got reintroduced to the concept of salvia divinorum. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with that? I'm, I'm familiar with it. I have no experience of it, but I'm oh, familiar with oh, it. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I have no experience with it either, but uh, I, I, I'm interested in all those kinds of things. You know, I, I read about them, and, <laughs> and, and I've sort of done a little bit of reading about that. And, of course, it is legal in California. <laughs> you know, or at least it's not. it's actually not legal, but it's not illegal. So yes. that's the important part. <laughs> and you can just buy it online. And uh, but today I talked to somebody for the first time who actually is an advocate of salvia divinorum, mm. who has taken it many times, and has some very strong opinions about it. Mm. And we had a really interesting discussion, and um, and I'm considering serious. I mean, for a long time, I I've had some drugs around here that I of the illegal type. Actually, I don't even have anything anymore. But the idea of experimenting with uh, things like psilocybin and uh, um, DMA, or I don't remember all the names. I get confused with them, but there are several that sound quite interesting. Well, this DMA, which is a um, which is similar, that's what they call Adam to what they used to call Eve, which they now call ecstasy. Yeah. So. Um, 
DMA and MDMA are, are different chemically, yeah. although they sound similar. Yeah. And then there's DT as well, which out of all the kind of psychedelic chemistry is the only one that really appeals to me. There was another one that was, um, which is more complicated, um, that is similar. It was Mal DMT and various other. But um, yeah, no, I'm I'm familiar with I'm familiar with. Well, the, the idea stuff. of a of a really short trip is is. And that's really seductive, you know, mm. of not having to commit a whole day uh, to something, uh, you know, something that's over in a half an hour and primarily over in five minutes mm. is something I've never experienced. Everything I've ever done has been quite long lasting. Mm. And so that's just a, it's just a totally different psychological environment, a much more experimental one. I mean, how much how bad can it get in five minutes, you know? Mm. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, the the people that know about this stuff, I mean, the people that I'm in contact with, the fellow who always fascinates me is Sasha Shulgin, who's still alive. Uh, And he's a fellow who, I mean, you're you're obviously aware of as well, but his writings in terms of completely scatterbrained and then moving into very fundamental uh, biochemistry, I've always, uh, well, I, I read, I guess, in my late teens and enjoyed at that time and uh, return to, but I live such a straight laced life now, Heron. I mean, really, none of that. Um, I'm trying to think of. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I mean, I have all this knowledge. I have all this knowledge implicitly. I also have a lot of uh, of uh, pre 1960s chemistry books that lay or nine mid 1960s that lay out all the chemistry very uh, elegantly. When I was. <laughs> yeah. um, when I was 17 and 18, I worked in a physics institution, and the physicists I worked with were all in their 70s and 80s, and they had all these old chemistry books, and as they retired, they gave them to me. So I have quite a collection of academic-level chemistry texts from the 50s and 60s uh, that lay out all this stuff very frankly and very plainly. Um, and it really, it's... It's a strange thing. It strikes me that the um, the mentality of making all this stuff not only illegal, but also then creating all this kind of politicized, you know, misinformation. Oh, yeah, it's really. Uh, What's well, yeah. It's the human way. That's them humans. That's the. No, I don't think that's no. I think what what actually. I mean, well, I, I mean, my perspective associated with it is that there is a strong element of xenophobia, which is which you're right is human, but there is also an element which is to do with. Um, authoritarianism, which I don't think is necessarily human. I think there's the construction of authoritarianism... Well, I, I, but you mean something different than I mean by human. Yeah, human is culture for me. It's not monkey business. Well, it's I mean, just it because a, you're part of an authoritarian yeah, yeah. culture. Yeah, right. I don't no, no, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, I, I'm, that's exactly... I'm agreeing with you. Mm. Yeah. So, it's yeah. more culture than... There is some biology involved in a lot of it, and in, even in some of that, maybe. But what we're talking about there is culture. Mm. And language. Mm. Well, as I've mentioned previously, my wife was a, an avid follower of the Grateful Dead. And while we we talked about it actually last weekend, I'm not sure what how it came up, but certainly her and her um, you know, ex, kind of extended family's experiences with various substances I find absolutely fascinating. Because I think you can get um 
I mean, my my personal view, having spent you know hours on beaches meditating in Thailand and things like that, is that you can get yourself into mental states without chemistry that is you know profound and enlightening. And I think the notion of psychedelics is more about the psychology than it is about the pharmacology well, fundamentally. Uh, it's they're both contributors, but as McKenna said, he would be appalled if he could get into those states without drugs. Hmm. That he you would see, consider that a, a form of pathology, that, that if you can get into those states without drugs, your brain is in a weird state. <laughs> well, you can through things like starvation and particular forms of exercise and a wide variety. Well, you can, of get, into, well, you can get into some very weird states. Yes. I would not identify them with psychedelic, the, the states you get into with uh, chemicals. Well, if you look, they at, may be related. They may be similar in many ways. I wouldn't mm-hmm. quarrel with that, but they're certainly not the same. Well, if you look at monastic, I mean, the the nature of shamanism doesn't. Well, although McKenna would argue every form of shamanism has some form of sacrament, I would argue that there are certain monastic traditions which create the sacrament through various properties like isolation, starvation, particular forms of exercise, and then perhaps very small quantities of sacrament. But I think, I mean, fundamentally well, we're yeah, talking... Th- but that's, that's not arguing against the chemistry. That's just saying that the, it's a complex phenomenon. It involves certainly. psychology and uh, exactly. physiology. Certainly, certainly. So I guess that's... Um... For instance, I'm immune to LSD. I mean, that's mm. pretty clear. So that's interesting. Mm. Mm. So... Yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic to these things, Heron. Did you so Salvia demonorum, this is a substance that I have done some investigation about just because I didn't like some of the alkaline side effects that were described. And I think my perspective with regards to all these things is that um I understand that there's a need for kind of stupefacants. Um but I'm always I don't know, I'm 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 not sure I know what you mean by a need well, for okay. stupefacants. So in in the cannabis spectrum there is a full spectrum from uh psychedelia through to just kind of sleepy time. Oh yeah, right, yeah. Absolutely. So that's, what I'm that's saying, crucial. That's a crucial difference. Yeah. So that's that's the chemistry fundamentally of what's being consumed from one perspective in terms of the chemical wake makeup to another perspective in terms of the chemical makeup. And I understand that, you know, the, this spectrum provides a wide variety of people with a wide variety of different backgrounds and different interests what they want, be it, um, you know, uh, extreme psychedelics versus just being able to, you know, equivalent of basically more than heavy alcohol, but basically the effects of relaxation. Yeah, yeah go to sleep. Take a exactly. nap. Exactly. <laughs> so I understand this um, spectrum. My concern with regards to Salvia divinorum is that the various uh, complex alkalis that are part of the chemistry um, probably produce more of the stupefying effects, and if that's what people want, so much the better. Then, um... well, that yeah, I from what I've been able to say, I don't know the names, but from from what I've read and from what I've seen, I haven't been that impressed by it. Actually, hmm. like I said, well, I, 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 I did I some research yeah. and uh, and basically decided no, I'm yeah. not interested. Yeah. But after talking to a guy who's been using it and who I consider to be a pretty fucking brilliant guy who's got as sharp a mind as I've run into lately is telling me very different. Mm. 
So, uh, you know, and my experience with drugs is that most people are idiots. It's mm. them fucking humans, and they use drugs for all the wrong reasons. Mm. They're, they hate their lives, they hate their wives, they hate themselves, or they don't know what's going on, or they're confused, and they're just looking for some release from their lives. Mm. And that's not a good way to take drugs. So there's an argument in the psychedelic community about this very point, that basically if people have reasons that they they use, and, you know, there's, there's the full extreme in terms of um, entheogens, the sacrament, whatever people refer to these substances as being. But there is, a, there is an argument going on within the psychedelic community currently about exactly that viewpoint. There are some that say, you know, if you want to take this and then party or take this and snooze, that doesn't matter, that's your right, versus people that say this is a sacrament for, you know, intellectual exploration, yeah. it should be used in a controlled fashion. So there's a full extreme within this Yeah, discussion. but those two don't contradict each other. Exactly. Though, right, I mean, they can all no. live with each We can all live certainly. together. Yeah, certainly. But I think, well, the issue currently, this is my returning point with regards to the psychedelic community, is that they've done small steps with regards to the medical uses of the various substances. But in terms of the uh, productive decriminalization, more things seem to, well, vastly more things are made illegal uh, every year, and there seems to be no um, movement away from that in terms of uh, <laughs> political no. movement or this kind of thing. So I guess that's my view with regards to all this kind of well, stuff. Well, that's certainly the case, but see, that's all irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, really? Well, it's irrelevant for perhaps for where you are currently, and it's relatively relevant for where I am currently, but what it does mean is that your social standing affects your ability to actually get a hold of and use these substances. And in fact, no, it's not irrelevant for well, me because yeah. I'm drug tested. Yeah, no, so, well, yeah, but I mean, we all, that's the point is that we all choose to live under the effect of various systems or not. Or pay the consequences for not living within those systems. Yes, I, we're I all in a feel, position of choice. I certainly feel that. And increasingly, I, I question my choices in this life. Well, I, I continue to question mine. You know, I don't think there's a point when you get beyond that. Yeah. But you get a lot better at questioning it. That's good. Mm. I, I've had some feedback from listeners in terms of the your... The notion of the language monkey versus your location, and I don't even know how to actually frame this because it's come from different people with different perspectives. Well, I'm, well, wait a minute, let me because I'm a little confused with the versus in there. Your language monkey versus your location. Well, I guess what they're saying is that your perspective of what a language monkey is is very much uh, about Southern California. Well, of course, because that's where I live, and that's my exactly only my, experience yeah. is with uh, South Californians. Yeah. Although I, I do meet people from all over the world here, you know, but still, well, it's South really, California I mean, and upper middle class. I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm in a fairly nice neighborhood. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, not I'm, upper middle class, middle class. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, anyone in anywhere in your part of the world. I mean, even well, even Orange the ghettos of yeah. Southern California yeah. are uh, nice, are more yeah. comfortable than most ghettos <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess the view is maybe that the strain of language monkey that you are surrounding yourself uh, by is not typical of um, 
you know, of, of other environments that may... It, it may not be. I, I'm learning more. I mean, a lot of the people I've been talking to for the last couple of years are from Europe. Mm. And uh, they certainly inhabit a very different space, you know. Mm. So, um, you know, I'm learning about other parts of the world. That's the beauty of the Internet. Or that, ah, that, a beauty of the Internet. Thank mm. you. I think the um, the thing that interests me is that it's one thing. I mean, certainly when I lived in Australia, I mean, I got out of Australia relatively young in terms of just traveling with my parents to Europe. But when you live in a place and you don't really experience the smells, the day-to-day, the subtleties of the weather, even the light, you lose uh, a lot of the... I mean, the ability to talk to someone for an hour or an hour and a half and get a sense of you know, some of their perspective in the context of your own is one thing. But to, you know, to walk through the streets of Frankfurt and to realise, eh, the city isn't really for me, it's got some good aspects and bad aspects, and then, you know, perhaps progress to other cities or these kind of things. And I think there's a part of this which, you're right, is very much, from our previous conversations, very much attached to financial uh, means. But I think there is also something that, um, I mean, you've talked in the past about your ability to, you know, you, have, you don't have a lot of stuff. You have an ability to move and leave your uh, area if you so chose. And is this something that you really consider or are you just comfortable? Because you talked last uh, recording about the level of comfort that you've kind of grown accustomed to. Yes. Uh, what I can say is I've since I'm not absolutely 100% in control of my life, I've found it necessary to move uh, well, six or seven times, I guess, in, in mm. the last uh, 30 years or so. And uh, and each time, you know, I mean, I started off, I used to have a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of books. And, um, and I just got tired of dragging that shit around all the time when, when most of it just really wasn't all that important. Mm. And so I've finally gotten down to what's act, what's, what I really need to be comfortable. And to be no, happy. I understand that. I understand yeah. that. So let's talk about location then. In terms of Southern California, do you have a group of friends or people that you know that keep that you feel gives a familiarity to Southern California for you? Oh, no, I have no commitment. To, well, I mean, I have a couple of, well, a couple, yeah, a couple at the most, two friends that I've known for 40, 40 years. You know, I don't see them very often, but they're here. But actually, I have more interaction with them on Skype than I do across the table. So, you know, really, it doesn't make one bit of difference where I live, Mm. as long as I have uh, a fast cable connection. Mm. So, I mean, that's that's almost all of the U.S., basically. And I mean, you and large other parts of the world too. True, but I mean, your ability to travel within the U.S. is slightly easier than your ability to travel outside the well, U.S. Well, money. Was... Well, the only issue is money. Yeah. That I mean, if you've got the money, you can do anything you want. Mm, you true, know? but I mean, you can also do things with relatively minuscule amounts of money. And I guess I, the the feedback that I've received is that a lot of the um, other, in terms of the language monkey, the experience is kind of quintessentially mapped onto experiences of Southern California. And this has come from listeners oh, okay. who've never yeah. set foot in Southern California and listeners that have spent large yeah, portions of their life. we so, should call this uh, California Scrooges. Mm. Oh, well, well, I'm not in California. Yeah, no, okay, West Coast Scrooge. Well, never West mind. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, no, so, I, agree. I I have no. I don't see that as a problem, really. I don't see how I could make any kind of rational statement about humans in general. That's that mm. would be presumptuous, I think, on my part. I can mm. speak with some authority on South Californians in Orange County, anyway, mm. that I've mm. met and, and observed. <laughs> Very good. And I'm Very unwilling good. to generalize beyond that. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yes, I would. I would consider the. Um, what, would, what do you call it? The Language Monkey Observational Anthropological Tour or something like that. In fact, um, I want to get KMO back on, uh, or as I prefer to call him, Kevin, um, <laughs> to actually talk about his experience of the most recent tour because compared to the previous one, he's had a lot smaller audiences by the Facebook appearances. But um, what appears more interesting is that he's been invited into more people's homes and he seems to be spending a lot more time with his uh, listeners. So I'm certainly planning on having him oh, back. Yeah, on, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah. if, if not this year, early next year, to, to give an update, he will then participate probably in the early uh, Two Scrooges podcast by the sounds of things. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting no, idea. Just Scrooges, not Two Scrooges. Scrooges. Okay. Because they're Scrooge. made, I mean, unless you want to make sure it's only just a, a, a dialogue. You see, I haven't, floated, I haven't even floated this as a possible podcast name or done any of that yet, which is always really dangerous putting things out in the public domain. But what I will do is um, quickly before I release this audio in the uh, Stone Ape feed, at least, that I'll... Uh, see if the Scrooges, the two Scrooges, two Scrooges or Scrooges is available as a podcast. Um, well, we'll move from there, I think. But um, returning to this idea of location and movement, have you thought about um, possibly adopting this uh, KMO method? And uh, I don't know, perhaps the first... Yeah, but you have to cultivate a, a, a following. You see, this is the, yeah, the, what I'm thinking here is that you probably should appear on the c Realm podcast, which is KMO's podcast, and have a conversation directly with him. All this, uh, me as the uh, intermediary stuff, just isn't really working in terms of actually getting you the information you no, need. maybe you're just here to connect people. Perhaps. Maybe Perhaps. if you think that he and I should talk, you have now communicated that to me. You can communicate that to him. And then it'll be up to us to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. You you probably need to... Uh, and you, you can tell him that I'm certainly open to a conversation. Certainly. I think probably the best bet is for you to start reviewing some of his background material to get a sense of whether the seed of an idea... Yeah, so we have something to talk about, for exactly. one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Give, uh, you can give me a URL or something that will... Yeah, uh, give me yeah. A, it's a C, the letter C dash realm podcast, and that'll get you... The, oh, uh, does he have a website? He has a... Um, I think he's got some website, but it's basically all just links and show notes for his podcast. Yeah. I, for, you know, that's interesting. I'm just thinking about the way I conceptual conceptualize things. Mm-hmm. And that to me, a podcast isn't as much of a thing as a website is for some mm-hmm. reason. And yet, of course, <laughs> they're both just screens. Yeah, well, one's an audio screen and one's a... Yeah. Well, no, but you still have the screen that, that you have to go to iTunes and or the iPod something true, or other. True, true. I guess... Still, you know, it's not that... But for somehow, I just didn't feel satisfied being told the podcast. I wanted a website. And then I realized that I, I really have to change my thinking about this because mm. you're right. Uh, oh, yeah. 
Anyway. Life just got more complicated for me. I'm going to have to start thinking about something that previously I hadn't really given much thought. Mm. So, uh, if we have time for one of my topics, I might float one of my topics here, unless you have more stuff to talk about. Do you want to talk more on drugs? We... No, I just it's just that I had that conversation earlier, and, yeah. uh, and so that was on my mind. So your view and my view is very similar with regards to uh, Sylvia Divinorum. I have a similar view that it doesn't sound... Um, well, I mean, for me, you know, of course you can always meet people who who talk, you know, an amazingly positive light about a wide variety of substances. Um, yeah, so, like pedophiles. <laughs> I wasn't going to go yeah, there. Oh, well, yeah, but yes, yes. <laughs> they yes. like books. You know? So, yes, yes. That yes. Now, there's a fascinating phenomenon, see. Should hmm. that book... They pulled it from, you know what I'm talking about, right? Of course. Yeah. I use the same mechanisms. We talk on a weekly basis about self-publishing. It's exactly the same method. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking, um, well, what was I thinking? I, I, I my try to err on the side of freedom, of ideas being allowed to go where they go. And I, and that's basically the, I'm, I'm of that opinion and I'm, not happy that they pulled the book. Yeah. You know, I, I think, yeah. you know, I don't know what's in there. I didn't read it. I don't yeah. really care. Yeah, I think um, my view is that the free, uh, a freedom of speech is a very curious thing, and it is, in fact, these cases where things would appear to be abhorrent to even a majority of the population where that is unfortunately what freedom of speech is about. The curious thing about a wide variety of things now is that there's um, there are all these counters to the uh, constitutional freedoms, and it's it's quite curious this um, these these notions. But yeah, I have to agree with you. In fact, I agree with you very strongly because I think the ability for anyone to put anything up in terms of sale on any topic. I mean, this is the thing that the the notion, I mean, this is fundamentally criminal, but what we've just been discussing with regards to drugs is also criminal. Criminal is just somebody's opinion. Yeah. So in terms of pedophilia as a movement, certainly not pro-pedophilia in any way, shape, or form. In fact, certainly through the experiences I've had and people I've known that have been... uh, you know, had those kind of things happen to them, um, certainly not positive in any way, shape, or form. I think what's more interesting is that if these things were out there and actively being tracked, my experience with um, the way pedophiles operated in Australia in particular was that they used a wide variety of methods to be very smart and very creative and very uh, working against laws that would work against them. And the ability just to have this information in the general public, I think, is probably a net positive in terms of actually, um, you know, well, well probably for anybody, yeah, if anybody who actually cares about the issue can get informed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And this is one of these strange things that, um, yeah, it's a very, I mean, my view, firstly, as someone who is not only exploring, but once I get through this whole editing psychosis thing that I seem to be in currently will will start self-publishing rapidly. Um, 
I think the ability for someone to create a PDF and then put it up on Amazon is critical. Oh, yeah. To start exploring the contents of that. And my feeling is that I, I would like to see profound political writing, which is considered abhorrent by as many political parties as possible put out on Amazon. Oh, I'll be happy to work with you on that. Yeah, I, I, no, this is, this is my view. I mean, we've talked yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe that sounds, sounds, that sounds like something that uh, we could partner on. So, so I mean, my, my view with regards to this is the ability to publish and get things out is far greater than, I mean, the whole notion of protection here is very curious because information, I when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., I went to the Smithsonian, and part of the Smithsonian's remit, it would appear, is to have people that are part of Just Say No sell um, uh, stickers to the people that are queuing in the heat trying to get into the Smithsonian. And I had a long discussion with a woman there that what children needed was, in fact, real factual information. If they could see pictures and of heroin you know, users over long periods of time and got real information about, firstly, that these substances weren't toxic initially, but over long periods of time, you know, if if the street quantities were given, you know, this would be what occurred, rather than just the nonsense of giving them misinformation and the old just say no mantra. Well, uh, well, that's been, well, the whole thing is, yeah, people take drugs. They always have, and, yeah. and, and there's no way to... Yeah, the truth is the only thing I think we have any hope of mm. dealing with is to. Just so the question, the question that she put to me was, "Well, is this stuff that children should be exposed to?" And my view was, if children want the information, it should be there for them. Yeah, you don't have to teach them. It's in yeah. their li- if it's in their life, yeah. then it's in the curriculum. Yeah, and <laughs> so I, I think the. the she then said, well, will you buy one of the stickers from me anyway? And I, I, by this point, I was just going into the, uh, into the Smithsonian, um, and I kind of smiled and waved her on. Um, but um, <laughs> the thing that strikes me is that I'm, look, I mean, I'm very, very, um, uh, what's classified, although I think misclassified as left libertarian, with the view that I think corporations and the government are both, you know, both bad things fundamentally, and in this country, both the same things pretty well fundamentally. Um, and I am the most extreme of this of anyone that I can catalogue through the political compass on Facebook. Yeah. So, no, I believe very solidly, not only that stuff that makes me feel violently physically ill, and plenty of stuff already is sold on Amazon that makes me feel that way, and I think this thing at least gives an adequate description to children, and if law enforcement was smart about it, law enforcement, and parents were smart about it, parents, and a wide variety of other people, the kind of information that people needed to... um, I I would want to read that book. Yeah. (laughs) If I was a parent. Yeah. (laughs) Irrespective of how disgusting it was, it's better to actually know... Actually, we don't even know how disgusting it was. Yeah. You know, I mean, if if you read ancient Greek... Yeah. Uh, apparently, they'd all be in jail as pederasts. Well, true and such. And, and, but that's okay yeah. because that was a long time ago, and it was the Greeks, and they were great, and they, you know, <laughs> and they actually were philosophers. So, yeah. So it's I think okay. there are. Yeah, there are. There are. I mean, my my view is that the um, children are so heavily devalued in the society, and are so heavily 
firstly, infantilized, and secondly, um, I don't even know the, the, the correct terminology, but basically I think children, certainly from where I come from in Australia, and also to a lesser extent here, although here children are just consumers. I mean, they're just viewed as being... Um, well, they are a great... That's what That was the big deal of the so, discovery in advertising is marketing to teenagers and children. Yeah, no, yeah, so... Yeah. So in that regard, you know, they are, so, um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think there should be more stuff out on Amazon. And I think the ability to have true freedom with regards to the information that's available for consumption is the only way that we can, uh, you know, break some of the chains that we talk about. Um, so that's my view and, as well. Well, are you familiar with bonobos? Uh, tell me about bonobos. The the oh, they're called the pygmy chimps. Oh, yes. They're a separate species. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know about their sexual behavior? The sexual favors of bonobos? Oh, yes. Well, it's more than favors. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much the center of their lives. Yes. So you know about it, though. I mean, you know, they, yes. that was why they didn't get reported on until, like, 1960. Because I mean, they'd known about them for, you know, at least 100 years, but nobody yeah. would write about them. <laughs> Yes. You know, and, and they seem to be doing okay. So the whole idea of physical intimacy with sexuality may be separable quantities. Mm. You know, I mean, maybe there's something in all that physical contact that, uh, that is actually important, and it may not be sexual. Although in our culture, of course, it's determined to be sexualized. Mm. It may not be though. That's why when I read the, you know, you, you read about the Greeks and their attitude, you you gotta wonder. Yeah, you know? I guess I it's guess a different kind of love. Of, true, the notion of uh, sexualized is very much through. I mean, a lot of a lot of the activities of um, pedophiles in terms of the the criminal pedophile is not to do with. Uh, the stuff that the Greeks talked about, though, fundamentally. I mean, the, the people that I've known that have been classified and convicted pedophiles typically talk in great detail about brutalization. Oh, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not sexual. That's a whole different thing. So this that, is exactly my point. But yeah. this, is, this is the capturing of the society, of their mentality, and I think the, the extraction of these things from a description of the actuality of the society is a very difficult thing. So, yeah. What you see in terms of people that would act out these these things, particularly with dramatic age differences, um, irrespective of the of the gender of the child, they are typically not part of some um, you know hermetic tradition. Of, you know, <laughs> so I think the, these things can be overly romanticised as well, and their position in society is really a critical factor. Um, so in that light, um, I'm sympathetic about the information being out there, but I think people need to really heavily educate themselves and also understand, and it's quite a brutalizing... Well, wait, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a, sometime far in the future, thousands mm -hmm. of years in the future, a mm -hmm. human culture that lived sexually like the bonobos do, and that Ooh. that would be a good thing? Mm. I think we would need to. I can imagine where everybody like, fucks this, everybody. I mean, really, where where this uh, is an interesting old male so, monkeys are screwing infant, not screwing, but mm. but hugging and kissing and so, gent, you know so, manipulating. Yeah, I guess the 
the sense that I have is that there are probably... It's interesting. Let's think of the social iterations that would need to occur before that could be the case. No, 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 no. That's not the way to approach it. It's, yeah, if you, I don't know how we get from where we are yeah. to that point. That, that's a great possible. But, I think but the point possible. is, is how, imagine what it would be like Hmm. To be at that end state, to you know, I mean, well, not end state, I, but in, in, a, in a culture like that where everything, where sexuality was, it was not. See, I think that's a mistake to call it sexuality. It's, but, it's sensuality, yeah. is yeah. what it is. There have been plenty of communes that have moved into that phase, even within our lifetimes. So I think that's already existed on some level with humanity. Now, again. Because these people come from our current social structure, the questions associated with abuse and a wide variety of other things have been... Yeah, um, brain damage to begin yeah, with. Yeah, so, so yes, the thing that interests me more is the kind of iterations that would need to occur in order to get there. But, I mean, look, anything's possible, Harry. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, the, especially when you get into uh, Kurzweil's cyberspace. I mean, if we do, in fact, move into the Matrix... Mm-hmm. Then there, then there, the possibility of multiple uh, unique sexes becomes available. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of sexuality in the Matrix disappears into sensuality again. Yeah. And um, sports is is I mean, or you know like wrestling or boxing or yeah. you know this, those are about Football. as sensual as you can get. Yeah. But they're yeah. not sexual. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think I, I would argue that they are fundamentally. I mean, I think that's the nature of particularly America's perverse obsession with these highly. Um, wow, what, what would I'm trying to find the right term here, but very much associated with, as you say, um, elements of sensuality. I mean, this is the whole deconstruction 101. There is a large and strong sexual undercurrent with regards to a number of Americans, uh, America's kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, traditional sports? What's the oh, term? No, I, I, I wouldn't quarrel with you on that at yeah. all. I, I, From wrestling yeah. to, I think, football, well, the whole well, ocean sport. of football and the cheerleaders and all this kind of stuff, I think is really curious um, sexual <laughs> programming that starts at a very young age. Well, yeah, you're right. It's all so, part. But you can't see it, that piece. Again, like, that's all built into with the advertising and the... Church mm. and mm. you know it's all part of us of that the big perspectives of beauty yeah. yes exactly exactly yes perspectives of beauty and strength so no I, I would agree with you I think I mean all these things are really strange um, in 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 the context of these but no I think we've already seen in our lifetimes bonobo like human environments the the part of that is making it. So it's sustaining and not part of, as you say, some continuation of the existing society. And I think that's the curious element associated with this. Also, I don't know if, um, I don't know the benefits of being a bonobo. Oh, I'm just suggesting that if you look at, well, if you look at them and you look at, at regular, you know, the other brand of chimps, and the, the amount of violence uh, in the chimps, you know, it turns oh, yes. out that, that oh, yes. uh, there's a huge difference, and that, and yeah. um, and and if you look at bonobos, and there's none. Yes. So, you know, you look at those two, and you think, okay, which one, which one would you rather be in? 
<laughs> you know, but again, to me, it stuff. seems like a fair. Well, not really. I don't. Well, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But it's it's an interesting thinking point. Yeah. Because I mean, we've got this. Listen, I got to make it clear. I'm not arguing for pedophilia, you know, uh, but I think our fear of that or incest or any of these things, any taboo you can imagine, I think those are cultural, and I think uh, they vary greatly from one civilization or one village to another. Yeah, but I would uh, argue that within things like familial power structures, uh, let's talk about incest specifically, that you need to deconstruct the familial power structure in order to have a circumstance where incest wouldn't convey the kind of negative connotations that it does. Well, all I'm saying is it's something that humans appear to do, you know, and mm. and, and it's not seen as bad by some people, but apparently not by the people who are doing it. I don't know. I, I find the whole thing is, is just not... I mean, it's something we need to uh, deal with on, on some sort of rational level, what human, the, the variety of human behaviors, and, and figure out who's actually getting hurt and what, I mean, is anybody actually getting hurt? Is, I mean, the idea, for instance, of, you know, a pedophilia of men and boys, say. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what is a man and what is a boy in the society? Well, it's not about the age. Of the, I think really the issue is, again, I think the issue is intimacy and that and that, that really is separate. I, I, I don't know, but my guess is I don't really know anything. I'm making this all up because I've never really <laughs> read anything about it. But I, I can imagine a love for a child that isn't sexual but wants to be, re, you, know, hu- you know, to be physical, to like hug mm. and kiss and... And, yes. and be close and cuddle and all yeah. that. And that, uh, that that really is independent, I think, from wanting to stick your penis in them. Certainly. You know, and, but those two are, re- the borders between that is really dangerous territory, you know. And, yeah. and, and, and I don't think we, I think we, if we can, we may be able to separate those things and that, that some pedophiles may not be a physical threat. Now, the question is whether it's a bad thing for a man and a young boy. What about a father and a son? They have a physical relationship. What if they're sportsmen? And You know, I mean, they yeah, but I think let's, let's be perfectly clear here. The, the sexuality is only in a context of a hierarchical relationship in these circumstances. So you need to deconstruct... The hierarchical well, relationship. So you define that very different. I would say sexuality is when I want to stick my penis in something. True. That's, no, that's that's that, okay. That's the, the, but that's independent, as I'm saying, of a hierarchical relationship. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. It's completely yeah. separate from that. Yeah. However, we have this notion. I mean, this is this is the Assange business currently. We have a very cultural and very different cultural notion of. Uh, what consensual means in a variety of contexts. The Swedish context oh, is its yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. And so the it's perspective really of yeah. the hierarchy, consensuality, and all these things. I mean, for example, the age of consent in the U.S., I think, is it's far higher than anywhere else I've lived. What is uh, it? I don't even know. What is it? It's 18? 18, 18, typically. I mean, in some states, it's even as old as 21. <laughs> but, um, you know, and the age I'm of consent not, means what? 
What does it that means mean? That, well, well, you won't get country, charged with rape. That's what rape. that means. Yes. It means you won't get. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's actually, the definition okay. here. That's the definition yeah. here because certainly there is a there are various degrees of leeway. For example, if a 16-year-old has a 15-year-old girlfriend in the UK or vice versa, 16-year-old boyfriend, you know, I don't necessarily think the police will be banging down the door and charging them with, uh, you know, statutory rape. Um, But this is what happens here. Um, So it's a very curious thing here, actually, as well. I've never met as many adopted people in the US. The density of adopted people just seems to be distinctly greater in the US than other places that I've lived. That could be. That wouldn't and, be surprising. Uh, yeah, and I think it's actually tied to this notion of sexuality and age of consent and all this kind of stuff, because I think what it produces is more children in circumstances where basically adoption is, is perceived to be the preferred I, I think that this is all part of uh, post-World War Two. That, that World War Two and the atom bomb and that whole five- or six-year period there changed the world forever. And uh, on the, the people that came out on the other side of World War Two <laughs> were well, well, it started honestly, I think, Karen, in terms of psychology, in terms of what's now called PTSD, and what had a wide variety of other names previously. That also came out of World War One, formerly oh, sure. known as Great War. Yeah, yeah. The, the psychology of just mass carnage and a wide yep. variety of weaponry that was completely, you know. Yeah, but I'm not talking about just the soldier. I'm talking about it as a cultural phenomenon. I understand that, but yeah. certainly the concern in this country after the Second World War was that the soldiers were coming back in a very different state than they'd even returned in the First World War, and there was a concern that psychology, and particularly mass hysteria and things, would get out of control, and that, in fact, in turn created a large part of the kind of cultural elements that we're discussing currently yeah. with this country in particular. There was another choice that was made, though, that was, I think, more fundamental, and that was what to do with all the production capacity of the war machine mm. with the war over and mm. a bunch of people uh, that needed jobs and housing and all that stuff and because they could the word the production the whole the whole sales and advertising world that all came after World War II I mean it was sort of beginning mm. <laughs> before that but the the modern world of psychology and stuff was really rebuilt after World War too certainly yeah no they they had both the mechanical the psychological they had all that production capability you know exactly. and they needed to and they needed to sell all that shit they were producing washing machines mm. you know and shit that no one ever had before <laughs> you know certainly and all this stuff uh, all of a sudden they're just producing this shit and shipping it out all over the world <laughs> and um, that was well. That's that's part of it. I don't even know how we got to that. Now I'm confused. <laughs> we were talking about pedophilia. Oh man, we've been all we over the place <laughs> from pedophilia. We have, we have. Jesus. Well, so, I, yeah. The idea is that I can, at least as a science fiction con- uh, reader and write, well, science fiction thinker, I can well, imagine a world, a high tech world that's concept of sexuality is so distant and different from what we think of again living in the matrix would would bring that on very quickly 
Well, I think it has already. I mean, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're looking. That's what we're seeing now. There's all sorts of stuff in the physical world, but that's still difficult and frowned upon, (laughs) you know. But in Hmm. if you go to uh, you know, like I say, Second Life, uh, well, it doesn't make again. That's such primitive, stupid, but. You know, the point is, all the old limitations of physics and biology are gone, and we can live in whatever the hell kind of universe we want to construct. Mm. And there's an overlap between the physical world and the mental constructs. And, and how that plays out is up to us to create. Mm. I would agree. I would agree. And I'm open to anything, really. I mean... Uh, I mean, I don't like pain. I think that should be eliminated. <laughs> you know, if there's anybody, you know, who's not having fun, <laughs> then we ought to really look closely at that behavior. Mm. Mm. But, but uh, in the absence of that, I think, you know, pretty much anything is possible. Hmm. Especially if you're immortal being. Yeah, I had a very strange conversation with my wife a couple of nights ago where she basically said that I was okay to die now, basically reiterating all the conversations we've had previously in this fight, (laughs) that that I'd done enough, that I existed in an electronic form sufficient that my own existence didn't need to continue. Yeah. And I thought of that in a very strange light. Wait, your wife said that to you? My wife said that to me. Good for this her. Be I, want to talk, I want to talk to her. <laughs> the hell with you. Let's get her in here. Uh, she, she, she would be far more critical than I am of you, Heron, unfortunately. She uh, listens not, to this. Not, no, not necessarily. And even if she is, I can handle it. I think I could, I think I could, I could make peace with her. <laughs> well, I'll let you in on a little secret. Uh-oh. She's the origin of the two Scrooges. <laughs> <laughs> Which yep. is probably why I'm so sympathetic to the name. Yeah. But um, I think uh, this was an interesting insight, but people who understand... I mean, very few people that I meet understand the me as a human plus me as this electronic form. But I think my wife is one of the few people that understands this. And this actually leads into another thing that I hadn't mentioned. I was going to mention this last podcast. But um, a few weeks ago now, my wife and I went to an NPR recording. I don't remember. It was probably maybe three or four weeks ago. It was, it was probably, We had a gulf of two weeks. So it was in that two-week period, probably just after we last recorded. Then we had a recording in a couple of weeks, which was the last recording. Then we had this one. So it was probably about three weeks ago. My wife and I went to an NPR recording. Now, I, I told you previously about how unsuccessful NPR had been um, in terms of their funding drive. The way that they did it, what was it called? Wait, wait, don't tell me. We went to a recording of Wait, wait, don't tell me. And this was in one of the casinos, the Paris on the Strip. We very rarely get down to the Strip, uh, probably only once every six months and usually just to meet people. So we kind of wandered down to the Strip saw this recording when we entered the theatre and it was probably uh, they told us that there were 6,000 people in the theatre. We had the cheap seats up the back. So walking up along the back, we had one of these very short terraces with very uncomfortable seats and as I was walking along kind of trying not to step on anyone's toes, kind of perched up in this thing I passed a fellow, actually I didn't pass him, as I was walking up to him he looked at me, smiled and said, it's you! (laughs) <laughs> and then reached out a hand, shook my hand, 
And I, because of the pressure of the people walking behind me, I kind of smiled, walked past him, said thank you, kept on going, down to the end, <laughs> took my seat, and then said to my wife, how on earth do I know that guy? And my wife said, this is probably someone who listens to one of your podcasts. And I thought, those kind of circumstances, I need to work out a line, like... And pray tell what kind of degenerate are you or something like that to try and establish how this person knows me, you know, model rail enthusiast. He seemed roughly my age, maybe slightly older. But I just thought to myself... Did he he look like he was totally nuts? uh, He he looked more artificial life than he did model rail. Let me just put it that way. That's that's so, yeah, I didn't know who he was, but I thought basically our people that listen to audio and may actually listen to some of my stuff. So I should have said something like, befriend me on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know exactly who he was, but I've got to watch that in the future. I used to have those kind of things happen to me all the time in Australia. And one of the things I really actually liked about leaving Australia was that those things stopped happening to me. Um, but yeah, I guess the potential is in these kind of circumstances, particularly when you're dealing with large. Well, if you, that's a odd circumstance. I mean, under most circumstances, you'd have time to talk with a person. So, I mean, well, it begs the question. I mean, in that circumstance, it was so strange to me that I really don't know if I would um, have shot the breeze with the guy if I'd been. I think the main concern that I've had. Um, I mean, I have mild concerns associated with stuff that we talked on previously associated with personal safety and just the kind of nuts that do become obsessed. This guy obviously wasn't one of those people. Oh, he was well, like, you've got, if, I had, if that happened to me and I wasn't under any time pressure, I'd say, well, who the hell do you think I am? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? I have been mistaken for people previously. That is the other perspective that I hadn't actually thought about. There was a, I had a doppelganger in the Bay Area, actually. Yeah, Mick Jagger, I think, right? <laughs> no, although my wife might argue otherwise. Um, but no. Uh, so moving on from that, but no, it was just one of those choice meetings where, um, yeah, I mean, if this person is a Stone Ape listener, um, I, I think this is probably one of the smaller uh, internet um, appearances that I do. But uh, yeah, I mean, please do befriend me on Facebook and explain how you know me. Oh, by the way, and do you know Ben Walker? Or Benjamin Walker? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. I do. Um, I don't know how I know him. I suspect he's he's a fan of the show. Yeah, he, he yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I have had, uh, we had one conversation, and um, we'll probably have some more. Via Facebook or via audio? Um, audio. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And who is he? Um, who knows? We haven't talked about who he is or who I am. We've been talking about language and stuff. Uh-huh. He's young. Uh-huh. He befriended me on Facebook. He's certainly been following uh, the Stone Ape recordings. My suspicion is, um, and I mean, Ben's listening to this, so Ben, you can tell us who you are. Um, but my sense is that he came on board from the KMO discussion. So he's that probably sounds reasonable. Of, I believe he mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's probably yeah. one of the KMO crossover listeners that we've had. Okay. Um, so welcome, Ben. Anyway, we had uh, a good conversation, mm-hmm. and so that that came out of this. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful for that. Very good. Well, I think there there are certainly some interesting folk that listen to this podcast. I really need to start forcibly integrating them uh, more into the audio recording. I guess I'm 
I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about... Uh, you should get your railroad people in here sometime. I've been thinking about that, you because know, Chris, Abbott, Chris Abbott does listen to this. I think my main concern is that I'm actually just burning out Chris Abbott. I've had a perfectly <laughs> sweet, easygoing guy, and he's now having to cope with chatting with 12 people at well, one he, time. He doesn't have to do that. He wants to do it. He, clearly he does. But then, look, you've got to be careful with what you wish for. I mean, you may want to do that for a certain amount of time, but after the fifth hour, it might get a little bit much. So... I'm Mike. I don't want to burn out Chris Abbott, but yeah, I think Chris would make an a interesting. I mean, the main thing with Chris is all I know about him, aside from a little bit. Of, I mean, he has talked to me off Model Rail Radio. We talk probably once every maybe two or three months, just about how the show is going and various directional things. And yeah. he was a big fan of my Biota podcast, although the Biota podcast have kind of trailed off recently. Did you hear the Eric Burton audio that I pasted in your feed a while back? Um, yeah, I don't remember it, but I, the name sounds familiar. He, he <laughs> was the one who was talking about using Rupert, simulating uh, Sheldrake's idea of, um, gosh, what you is know, it? Yeah. I, I do remember that, and I remember... Well, I, I'm, I'll, I'll shut up. I do remember it, but I but I don't have much memory of the detail of it. Yeah. So no, Eric is a character. I I uh, I he's someone who fascinates me. I feel a great degree of sympathy for him because he's been, um, you know, he's been hospitalized from time to time. Uh, but there is a kind of stream of consciousness element that I. Uh, enjoy. I can't imagine what it, I don't have any photographs of him. I don't know what he looks like. I don't really have a sense of him as a person, uh, aside from the fact that, uh, you know, just this constant stream of consciousness and occasional coughing um, that represents him. But, no, I, I want to get Brandon DiCamillo on. Um, he's someone who really has fallen more for the model rail radio side of things, which strikes me kind of strange, and he's now planning a layout that I'm assisting him with. So maybe we'll get him in as one of the... Uh, which, Honestly, the reason I've just been working on um, both this 93 writing and also this Origin of Design book, and I did want to talk a little bit, because I've talked about the 93 thing ad nauseum for the past few, I did want to talk a little bit about the Origin of Design book this evening, if you have time, because I have a little anecdote associated with that that occurred today. I have been, in theory, dialoguing on three chapters. One of them is with a fellow called Steve Grand, who I've known for about, 10, 15 years. I mean, he was portrayed initially as a, a nemesis of mine by um, an Australian publication and avoided talking with me on uh, BBC Radio when I was on BBC Radio. And he and I have had initially quite a strange and strained relationship. But now, actually, I'm quite good friends with the fellow. Um, so we engaged in extended dialogue in this book, uh, which was relatively easy. The other, there were two other people in dialogue that I was supposed to work with. The first was the aunt of one of the editors. And she had written a chapter that was absolutely nothing to do with the book. And I queried her on this and said, um, you know, let's rewrite this, or at least at least rework this so it's got something to do with design, at least. So then we've got something to talk about. Or alternatively, why don't we just have dialogue to explain how this fits in with the book? And she said no. So I thought, well, this is very curious, and I tried to reframe it slightly more politely and do a variety of other things, and, and basically she stopped corresponding with me. So then, well, when, then who is she? She's a... Um, it's all to do with AIDS um, epidemics. She's an epidemiologist and economist. Um, okay. But she's not putting the, the material together. It's not... 
Well, no, it's her chapter. I mean, she wrote this chapter uh, on the AIDS epidemic and the failure to respond, which has got nothing oh, to do. No, but I mean, about- oh, so, but who, I mean, the bo- editor of the book who hired all of you people to do this, right? I had just the wrong term. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. uh, I would use the term perhaps corralled, confused, engaged, yes. <laughs> uh, there was no money changed hands. <laughs> it was not working. Oh, oh, okay. Um, yeah, because, yeah, anyway, go on, yeah. So anyway, I kind of found this quite frustrating, and the final fellow just wrote this kind of eclectic stream of consciousness stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with design as well, and in fact, basically just quotes his own work. I've got it in front of me, it's just what, rubbish. Wait, what's the, the main point of the book? So the idea is that design is an emerging... There's an emerging design science, which is really kind of constructing itself, and it comes in large part through uh, engineering elements of things like fashion design, uh, very little associated with economics and mathematics, which you would have thought would have come from. So basically it's creating a linguistic description of various design paradigms that's applicable to everything from um, the assembly of molecules through to nation-states. So it's one of these, well, I guess it would hope to be one of these post-sciences in terms of not being a natural science and not being a social science. But anyway, from that, um, it's still early days, and the people and the writing that's coming out of it is actually quite eclectic and quite interesting. Then comes this book. Now, from what I've read in this book, it's just a kind of collection. I, I don't really know if they kick, they didn't kick anyone out. For This is one of the few books that I've written in where we were told that we would get some peer review and we got no peer review. I haven't had any dialogue for my chapter. I know my chapter's been accepted, uh, but I've had no feedback. And my stuff was very much from the um, fledgling field of design science. And to a certain extent, Steve Grant borrowed from that, although his chapter was more descriptive. This uh, epidemiologist woman has none of that background. She's just writing um, almost political theory, really, associated with responses to the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And she uses the word design once through her chapter, not to mean the context of the origin of design, which the book is on. So anyway, her niece, who's the editor, emailed me and said, um, you know, how are the dialogues going? And I said, well, you probably already see Steve Graham's dialogue. It comes to about, I think, 15 pages. They're going to have to edit it down. I said, I'm having some problem with the dialogue with your aunt because it's not in the framing of the book. And I've encouraged her to, you know, write on design in the framing of the book. Um, But as it stands, I just don't see this chapter fitting in with the themes of the book. And then I said, and you know, and then there's this other fellow who really, you know, I mean, basically my all the positive energy that I had towards the book was sucked up in terms of both reading and writing this response to this person who has got a chapter on nothing associated with the book, but is related to one of the editors. So I got a pretty catty response back from this woman's niece saying it's not my decision whether or not this person's in the book. She's in the book because the editors decided that she was in the book. And this chapter has already been published in the Institute of Epidemiology. It's an identical chapter and she's not going to change it. I just thought to myself, this is why I'm not an academic because firstly, my time is not free. I've invested 
evening after evening after yeah. evening, yeah. going through this no, garbage. No, they're all getting paid for it. Exactly. Yeah. Going through this garbage, which has no position right. to be in this Yeah, building. Yeah, that's you the only know? reason you yeah. involve yourself in such a silly argument, yeah. is if somebody was paying you to do it. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, everyone's time is free but mine. Yeah. Uh, and, no, so I thought to myself, this is the this is the reason I'm not an academic, and also why I need to extract myself from these things because yeah. the vision of academia. Uh, listen, man, we're all whores. Yeah, we all well, are. We don't have to, no. Look, I I think as we've described with regards to locations and wide variety of things in this conversation already this evening, we can make productive choices not to be in these circumstances. So the decision that I've made, I I wanted to be in. I mean. You know, I was hoping on flowing today with regards to pulling the whole lot, because as far as I'm concerned, my writing doesn't have to be in this stuff. I've invested my time. I can put my writing anywhere. Yeah. And to assign copyright to this thing over this yeah. nonsense, screw it. Yeah, you, I do you also, want to do. The niece wants to be in one of my bio things, and um, shall we, you know, moved on to the fourth or fifth edition if such a thing comes out, as far as I'm concerned. So I think the whole political nature and completely <laughs> counterproductive nature of academia yeah. has really been it's one not, I'm Well, thinking. it's not just academia. Again, it's, no, it's, it's exactly. not every place. It's, it's the people you were with. That's the thing is you need to be a judge of character of the people you're going to be involved with. Exactly. You, know, you, need, to know, least, you yeah. need to know who you're being involved with. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm a hermit. <laughs> well, you see, I, I allow the first – I allow a one – you know, you do this to me one time, and if, if you know, if we have a good relationship, then I may consider a second. But really, after the second time, See, I don't no... give them an opportunity to do it See, the first exactly. time anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, the... I, it's there, but they they're going to have to be strong. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they're going to have to really want it if they want a first shot. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with Steve Grand is that it has almost been a kind of culture of forgiveness in terms of our relationship, and I have had this. You know, I've had the circumstances in the past where people have genuinely come to me and said, I'm sorry for X, Y, Z. Can we move on from that point? And I'm perfectly happy to move on from yes, that point. Yes, of course. Anyone who can, yes, can see that they were an asshole sure. and can admit it yeah. is yeah. obviously not an asshole. <laughs> well, a, maybe a, a repentant asshole. Well, um, but anyway. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> if you own that, then you're, yep. uh, you're back in. Certainly. So I guess my feeling associated with this is that um, really what I'm doing currently in terms of my own work is more the direction that I want to be going, even though I'm trying to break this whole... You see, I got this proof back, Karen, and I missed a full stop. I missed a period in the first four pages. And I thought, how on earth... And I went back to previous versions, and it's not in any of them. So I thought to myself, I've really got to reread this, and I'm... I'm putting this out on the podcast. This better be the last time that I have to read this 93 writing. But I'm going to do it twice. I'm going to go through it twice this time. I'm going to do things that I haven't done previously <laughs> and try to get past this point of finding these errors. I'm not finding any more typographical errors. I'm not finding any more word errors, but I'm still finding subtle punctuation errors occasionally. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, so. yeah. Well, and you know what? Uh, there's no, you don't really actually have to assign, you know, there's just a release date. Hmm. There's no reason in the world that as people who read it advise you on things, you might have a, an update. That's the freedom. That's the freedom yeah. that I have. So, so you, that takes all the pressure off, actually. It's <laughs> good. But I don't, want to, I don't want to get myself into... I mean, the, the culture around open source is very different to the culture around paying eight bucks for a book or you know, $3.50 or whatever for a download. I mean, I ah. think the culture is different. 
So I want to make sure that I've done everything in my... What if it's just for free? Is that out of the question? You see, I'm, I've done this. I've done all my life has just been for free up until now. And I think the thing that interests me is that that's actually patently false. Because what I've done is I've worked for nothing. And then some people have made money from the stuff that I've done. So I think my feeling is currently that, for example, if I want this thing to become, for, well, okay, so I filed copyright. Okay, I filed copyright on Noble Ape as well. I mean, that's just what you do, you know, if you're serious about open source. But my view is that in order to get this story out there, it doesn't exist in words, it exists in a concept form. And the kind of gatekeepers that exist with this concept form, particularly if it translates to anything, be it a graphic novel, uh, an independent, you know, no-budget film or what have you, the wide variety of directions this thing could go, but releasing it open source. Well, I could do what um, I could do what the Boing Boing fellow does. What's the Boing Boing fellow's name? Cory Doctorow. I could do what Cory Doctorow does, and release it both free and for money. And that's yeah. something that I'd seriously yeah. consider. Yeah, that's that's a nice uh, option. I think that's a good option in terms of just getting the idea out there. The problem. In fact, how could it be better? If if your primary thing is to get the idea out there, Mm -hmm. then that's the best of both possible worlds. (laughs) You can pay for it, or you can have it for free. Yeah. So a lot of people will pay for it. Yeah. I guess this is really this is the exploration that I'm doing with the bio to transcripts currently because that is exactly the same thing. That you can get it for free in audio form. Or you could pay for it in paper or electronic form in terms of, like, the words versus the audio. And the value-added benefit is only me and the original speakers and the transcriber actually touching the text and making it more readable. So that's really the model that I'm working with the bio transcripts. I'm sympathetic to the 93 writing moving in that direction as well. I just think there's so much of my stuff that I've already put out there for nothing, quite literally. And in particular, my relation... For example, I mean, going to Apple and Intel and going to the Bay Area and just seeing these companies and also the company's reaction to me in terms of these are companies that have really benefited from my work. I mean, when you sit in a room of 12 Intel engineers of various ages who've all coming up through Intel used Noble Ape and you get a sense that there are a similar number of people who aren't in the room who have used Noble Ape through the same group and then there are infinite number of more people that have used Noble Ape and used it in terms of making these chips and you know doing all the wonderful things that they do at Intel you get a sense that you are giving them something which is extremely valuable to them and they are not giving you anything back other than street credibility so I guess my point is that a large portion of my life now has been associated with street credibility. I don't feel uncomfortable with putting out something currently not under, but still releasing it at a fraction of the cost. Of... Well, the issue is whether you can make a product. Mm. I mean, really, I mean, if you want to play that game that way, you need a product, that, and there needs to be a market for that product. At least that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I guess that's part of the reason that I've explored Facebook ads as well. 
is the thought that you're right, there is a component of this that is associated with marketing. But I guess the um, the stark contrast to this, I mean, as, as, I, as I mentioned previously, my parents are published authors, and my mother in particular is really dismayed by this notion, even that I'm self-publishing it in terms of putting it out there and relying on my own um, abilities in terms of the publicizing of it, the press attachment, all this kind of she's, stuff. She lives in a very different universe. Well, she's... Do. She exactly. apparently doesn't understand <laughs> the well, new no, world. She has, no, exactly, but the reason for that is, as we've described with regards to my grandparents previously, she has had experiences of actually having books that are successful, having agents, yes. having people that are actively publicizing yes, her books. it's a wonderful having, world. Exactly. But it doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. That's right. And this I make to her is that yeah. she isn't publishing well, currently. Well, that does happen for a couple people, you know. Look, uh, honestly, you honestly know. The, that, the whole model Stephen is so... King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is, well, yeah, but uh, look, uh, the, the fact, the view is that no one could come out now like Stephen King. Oh, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I mean, if I they say decide it's impossible, that, but it's highly, well, highly, I, I, highly unlikely. Yeah, well, I don't see. I think is if it did, it did, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't even concern myself with that one really. But I can imagine that if somebody decided that that's the thing to have next year, that um, you know they'd manufacture that. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Mad Magazine? Oh, am I? God, I grew up with Mad Magazine. Okay. It's in so my William, jeans now. Very good. I mean, okay, we're, we're like-minded, we're like-minded, ah, yes. uh, like-minded uh, Newmanites. So the, uh, the blueprint for this is hearing William S. Gaines interviewed by the comic book journal in 1982, which I think is probably some of the most fascinating grassroots capitalism narrative. And this really, I feel even hesitant to use the term capitalism, but just this notion that ideas and uh, sheer tenacity can actually create what you describe here as a product. So the fast, he makes a number of really interesting points through this, I guess, hour and 40 minute interview. Um, but it is a fascinating discussion and I'll dig it out for you and, and provide you with the audio. Yeah, there's a link for this? Or uh, and, no, a comic books journal put it online, so they said for one month only, and I quickly grabbed a copy oh, of okay. it. So you, we can, yeah, you can just, yeah, you can just send places. me a file I'll just put it somewhere. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, he makes a number of really interesting points, but he does, I mean, I think he is so, and he, he's had, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with the, uh, what's the fellow's name? Harvey. There was a fellow who was like the, editor of Mad Magazine when it first started out and they had a large fight. Anyway, well, I don't know the names of any. I just yeah. was a kid and I read yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I know Don, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, yeah. So I found that fascinating and I think what it explained to me is, so our, our favorite communist listener, this is a good example of where this goes slightly wrong. Um, he and I now have a podcast recording, and he invited on one of his friends to talk about his Battlestar Galactica wiki that he had set up. Oh. And there is a very, there's a movement in kind of, and I, I'm I'm very familiar with this because when I moved to this country in 2000, I stayed with a fellow who was very much a, a young Republican kind of born again Christian type. And this notion that even your hobbies, you need to form an LLC for even your hobbies. So when this fellow came on, uh, Jonathan, our 
our favourite communist listener, just lay it out. I think there were three LLCs that were affiliated. LLC? It's Limited Liability Company. It's like the basic um, form of corporation in this country. So imagine if you had, um, I don't know, if you had three or four of these companies that you had set up for your various interests. And the way in which, I mean, for example, this is the difficulty that I've had describing Noble Ape. So when I was first appearing on Jonathan's podcast, and I've had this happen with other people that I've helped out, and they've announced Noble Ape being like this kind of corporate entity that does all this amazing artificial lifestyle, when really it's a hobby of mine. And I think there's a genuine disconnect with this view that everything that you do should be firstly justifiable in a kind of corporate sense, this kind of mentality. That's That's what I'm out to kill. So, Not that should be yeah. that should never be a consideration. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I would agree thoroughly. So I think this That's is what the world we're working for, yeah. people. I know. <laughs> so this is this is the thing that interests me about William S. Gaines because he could come out initially as someone who was very much part of that league of, you know, you do everything to make a buck. But what he was saying actually was that there are ways that this this is not something which is um, universal, that this is something that is very fragile, can be nurtured, and can, in the end, and I don't think we'd have any argument between uh, you and I with regards to this, create great art, which I think ultimately is what Mad Magazine is. So this is the thing that fascinates me about the Gaines interview, is that it really frames the notion of kind of grassroots, I don't even want to use the term capitalism, but really creating creating products that can kind of irk through society and actually also provide a living for a variety of people as well. And I think that's an interesting paradigm, that it's not something which needs to have all these ridiculous things like, you know, your your hobby wiki becoming a corporation or anything like that. But I think there is probably a method there where you can perfectly comfortably survive on your own wits uh, and, you know, and still do enough for free or to put your ideas out there at least um, that you can survive. And really, I think this is the the interim. I think that I don't. I'm sorry. You finish. You weren't uh, you weren't quite done. Let me. I guess, I guess my feeling is that if you think that this potential is evil and abhorrent just by necessity of the way these things are formed, then I guess you're always destined for the circumstance that I find myself in, in terms of the perennial hobbyist, you know, working as a schmuck independently uh, to provide for all these things. And I guess what I'm interested in exploring is, is it possible for any one of these ideas to sustain something which could then, you know, then be something that could sustain me and potentially a number of other folk as well. Yeah, that's the same question I'm still dealing with. Good luck. Yep. <laughs> I think, I think, and I think it awesome. is possible, but I think that yep. the, the thing, again, I think the future is with uh, the butterfly, not with the caterpillar. I think capitalism is history. I'm not interested I am interested in surviving at a, and at as nice a level, as enjoyable a level as possible. But uh, I'm not willing to compromise a whole bunch of things. Well, I would be, I guess, if I was facing homelessness. But yeah, but, um, yeah. So I'll certainly share the guide's audio with you, and uh, I think it it for me anyway. It provided 
a certain blueprint. I don't think all everything that he says is. Um, well, what is it, what is it that he's saying? I mean, he's, in, he's basically describing how he. Well, he his father was killed um, in I think a boating accident from memory, so he was thrust into this. His father had published um, Bible comic books or something like that, and he really used what was I mean, basically the, the ability to start a comic book. Um, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. A franchise of the wrong term. A comic book uh, pub- publisher. <laughs> you ability to start a comic book publisher. He obviously had certain means associated with that, but the reality and certainly the fan um, writings um, that describe the period of uh, is th- is this the guy who in fact started Mad Magazine? Yes. Okay, and it was He's the really publisher. it was okay, and it was his. I mean, it, was it originally a single idea or a group idea? So what the way it came about was there was the thing called EC Comics, which, as ATM does, stood for Educational Comics. Comics, um, and EC originally did these Bible comics, but then when he came <laughs> Bible to Bible comics, yes, okay. oh god. Okay. So when he came to, it, however, in the Second World War, I mean, the whole notion of kind of neo-Gothic mentality. Well, let, me, exactly, wait, let me ask you a question. Uh, it, was he, you're saying that they were like fanatic Christians or something? No, 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 no. This a, was just a, a market for them. This was a market thing. Okay. However, as we described, associated with the psychology of the Second World War, he picked up that. I mean, that was his generation. He got a lot of artists were returning GIs uh, and, and writers, and they created um, graphic war comics and horror comics and a variety of comics which were considerably more um, well, graphic and to some extent sexual but primarily violent uh-huh. and considerably more than what had been done As previously. As opposed to Daffy Duck and exactly. Mickey Mouse. Exactly. Yeah. So the view there was that comic books were both something that were for the returning GIs to actually describe the experiences that they'd had and I think psychologically that had a huge impact on American culture. I mean, the, oh, sure the bombed-out yeah. cities of Europe and these kind of things, you know, to have two, whatever, two and a half million people return to that in their minds. Uh, and these comics really followed that in a kind of artistic pursuit, beautiful comics. Um, they were then, of course, um, dealing with the 1950s, particularly the late 50s, seen as being something that was just brutalising children, and they then brought in the comic book standards, which I think were in the late 1950s. And he testified, uh, William Gaines testified in front of the senatorial, um, you know, whatever, damaging children, comic books, what have you. And from <laughs> that, they had basic standards that they were able to... There were two things that MAD did that were able to break that. The first was that they no longer published in a comic book format. They published in... Um, like a magazine format. Ah. And they also... <laughs> How simple it is. <laughs> they also were considerably more... Um, subliminal is not the right term. They weren't as um, blatant, although a lot yeah. of the early stuff was still pretty racy. Uh, but it moved very much from that, publishing hom- horror and war comics into these uh, really quite profound satires, which basically has been the history of Bad Magazine, although it's moved in 
um, you know, a variety of different directions. The modern mag magazine is nothing like even the mag magazine of the 80s. Oh, yeah, I've looked at it a few times. I, yeah. I just have no interest in it. It's no. not advertising in it now, which was the main thing that gains for Oh, there gain. was ma Oh, there. Yeah, oh, new. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah no, they yeah, no. It's yeah. much. It's. I think. Oh, it's got advertised. Oh, they're whores. Kill them. Yeah, get yeah. rid of it. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Yeah, so when I moved back to this country in 2005, I got a. Subscribed to Mad for a year for nine dollars, and I thought, well, how bad can this be? <laughs> and and you yeah, found out. <laughs> and yeah, I, I found out pretty quickly how bad it was. But no, as a child, I had a, and because my father travelled quite a bit as an academic, he would bring me back. Like I had an Italian Mad and various other like foreign language Mad magazines, which I'm sad to say, and I got rid of through my late teens. Oh well, I got rid of all my. I mean, you still have Mad, your Mad magazines. No, 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 I'm saying I got rid of all of them um, through my through my teens, basically. Mm. Uh, but it is something that I reflect on. I did buy um, some 1950s and 1960s mats and also some EC reprints. In fact, I have some original EC stuff as well um, that I've just picked up just in terms of kind of creating, um, you know, points of reference, in particular in the library uh, of these things, but not a lot. I mean, I probably have... I've got one collection of their Two-Fisted Tales, which is one of their war comics. Um, the horror stuff I could never really get into. It's very kind of gothic horror, but also it's very much... I mean, it's Elvira, the Mistress of the Damned, is kind of the continuation of that stuff. But they did have um, Tales from the Crypt, which was a television series, I think, in the late 80s as well. They, they brought that back. But yeah, all these kind of images. I, you know, I don't understand that. I never. I mean, I did read when I was a little kid. I wrote. I read like Daffy Duck, <laughs> you know, and Mickey Mouse uh, cartoon books, and yeah. I thought those were fun. But I never really got into to any of this. The Ma Mad Magazine wasn't a comic; it was a magazine. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. and um, it. Yeah, and God, and there, and then later in the sixties, you know, there, there were all the R crumbs stuff, course, and yeah, I thought all, I all the really yeah. cool stuff, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and and then of course it's you know we, now it's two thousand and eleven. Who knows what the hell's going on? That's the striking thing is that there are no war comics. Oh, I mean, I'm I sure there are somewhere. No, oh. no, no. Oh no! Look, I I go into I have firstly I used to work with you a mean fellow online that, or in print and paper. Both. I th really? Online, there's no war comics? No war comics of, of contemporary wars. I have the same... No, I mean, I think about Afghanistan or... No, I can't understand. It's, it's completely removing the psychology from the really, population. Really, that is interesting. Yeah. There's Find nothing you, about Iraq. Nothing. Well, nothing. of course not, because <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. You see, I... I <laughs> stupidly, and I don't do this as much as I used to, but I do do it occasionally. I do go into toy stores occasionally and ask if they have any Taliban. <laughs> no Taliban. I ask if they have any insurgents of any form, and then yeah, ask anybody, if they... any suicide bombers. Uh, yeah. Nothing. <laughs> you have, you know, and, and roadside <laughs> bombs, and there's all. Yeah, the salvation of G.I. Joe's. I mean, where is the? It boggles my mind that you can't get. Firstly. Accurate. You can get occasional, very you know, well constructed action figures associated with particular parts of the contemporary conflict on the U.S. side. But realistically, you see, all the conflicts previously, including I understand the Vietnam War, you could go and actually buy 
you know, plastic Vietcom, you could go and and oh, really? yeah. Oh, I don't. I you know, I never really didn't even. Anyway, about that I, I have one final That's story. Like you're a toy soldier guy, so yeah, yeah. Anyway. So you would be aware of these things. So I have one final. I understand you're, you're fading quickly here, and I probably no, should. No, I'm not uh, failing. I'm, I'm, okay. I am okay. energized. Man. I said laugh okay. like that uh, does wonders. <laughs> I, I have one comic book relate, which explains some of this in context, because I'm too. Not really interested in comics aside from these occasional uh, ebbs and flows, and certainly as a means of kind of, I don't know, social, what have you. I mean, I, I have some interest associated with comic books. But um, when I was young, I was fascinated with computer games and actually writing computer games, which leads into the artificial life stuff. And I wrote three games which were called the Schmuck Quest series of games. And they revolved around taking elements of popular culture and then just moving them into a strange and disturbing place. But Associated with these computer games, they're originally kind of text and simple graphics-based computer games. I wrote quite elaborate manuals, quite detailed manuals with a lot of humour and a lot of elements to it. And I had a few peers at the time that would play these games. They actually got quite popular through the bulletin board circuit and local public servants and whatever would play them. But when I was about, and this was when I was about 12, 11, well, 12, 13, 14, so about that age group. When I was 17, 18, I had a group of friends that moved to... Perth, which is on the other side of Australia, and started producing independent comics. They, I think, produced three independent comics. And they covered all the material that I'd done in the SchmuckQuest manuals in comic book form. Although they refused to kind of acknowledge my influence, although they did acknowledge it when I contacted them and said, you know, this is wonderful that you're using my material. It would be nice if you kind of gave me some writing credit or some kind of interaction. But I don't know what actually happened with those comics. I have contacted the um, primary graphic artist because he has more stuff of mine than I have of mine. I mean, he has, like, old interviews and, like, radio recordings and, like, all the music that I recorded and stuff like that. He has that all in tape form. And he has said to me, oh, I'll send it to you in digitized form. I'll send you the MP3s and yeah. I'll get you scans of the comics and all this Just kind of talk, stuff. Huh? <laughs> but, yeah, never... No action, no action. He befriended me on Facebook. Have you talked to him recently? And well, he befriended me on Facebook. Exactly. I was just too disgusted by the whole thing. He, he sent me the usually... And I've been having this conversation with him back since 2000. When I first, actually 2001, uh, uh, when I arrived uh, uh, in the UK, he said, Tom, great to hear from you. I've got all this stuff. You know, I published these comics, you know. And he never once, never once has he actually delivered with regards to any of these things. I mean, I'm assuming he still carries this stuff with him. Uh, but... Uh, no, those comic books were quite fascinating because they were... There was an element of jealousy, really, because when I developed all these games, these guys who did the comic book weren't really involved with that, and they just said, ah, oh, you know, this stuff, you try hard, Monty Python kind of element. And then they ran or well, they went off and did these comics verbatim, the stuff that I'd written through these Schmuck Quest games. I have tried to find... I mean, this is the problem with all this information. It's very lucky that I still have the 1993 writing. Ironically, as I talk to you, I have in front of me a SchmuckQuest 1 and 2 uh, 3.5-inch Mac disk drive from 1990. Oh, and I can't... I don't... I've not got it. I don't have a floppy disk drive to actually yeah. take the oh, data. Oh, you can up. still buy them. They're available. Yeah, I don't know if actually it still has the data on it, but what it does have is still the, the label from it. And I used it in my Stanford talk notes. It was on the slides that I put up saying, you know, this is, this is my origins in terms of artificial life yeah. simulation. Um, but no, it was an interesting experience, and I'm sympathetic to, I mean, Rushkov, Doug Rushkov, 
uh, worked with a comic book artist and did a graphic novel for a period of time. And I think in terms of the reading fraternity, there is probably a good overlap in terms of fantasy, sci-fi, comic books. I mean, these people at least are still semi-literate, you know? Yeah, I just, you know, I don't know what it is, but I just, I mean, I have, I'm, you know, I've done anime and manga yeah. and even helped yeah. translate some of it, you know, and and also, and I just never really got into that. I mean, I, I, I'd rather, I read books all the time, but I don't want to read, I don't know why I don't like pictures with words for some mm-hmm. reason. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the form, but I certainly don't go out there and really... As a form, it frustrates me currently. There are, from what I can find anyway, no, on one end, you know, no accurate accounts of what's actually going on in these. Yeah, well, I haven't really given it much of a chance. Yeah. I, I just am not attracted enough to it. I mean, I've yeah. seen what they look like. I've looked at them at the bookstore. Yeah. You know, and they look cool. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I guess I the don't know. I haven't bought one and sat fantasy. down with it. Yeah, yeah, the elements of extreme fantasy. I mean, it, it would be interesting your. Bonobo Future as a graphic novel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, I think you couldn't make that novel. movie in this culture. <laughs> no, maybe you could. That's it right, just that, that's, right. Now, there's a challenge, is to make yeah. that movie in this culture. Well, I don't know. You could use particular <laughs> filming angles and things like that to... Uh, well, no, but, I mean, the concept would be... That's a fascinating idea, because... Wow. If, if you could just grasp that idea, I mean, just grasping that, whether you forget whether you like it or not, yeah. just grasping it and seeing it as a real possibility could be really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But anyway, so I guess that's... Do you know any movie producers? Uh... I know, I know. A, it would a have few to be pornography, so I mean, it may be someone, and that may be the right neighborhood for that. I did have. What was my connection? I did have some through the, uh, through, ironically, through the International Game Developers Association Intellectual Property Rights Special Interest Group. There were various lawyers that uh, had uh, representations of interesting industries in California. Um, but I do have more primary people that are connected with that kind of stuff. I think the interesting thing would be not to make it non-pornographic. Oh, yeah, it's not, that's not important. It's the concepts yeah. that count. Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't need to see anything. That's yeah. irrelevant. Uh, but, but that's what I'm saying is I'm thinking the very concept of everybody, I mean, from infants to the oldest people, manipulating each other's genitalia all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering whether, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that would probably get somebody killed. I mean, they banned the book from, you know, everyone. It was a big upset for three days at least, you know, yeah. about that book. Now, of course, what, what's the current thing today, anyway? Uh, Assange, I don't know. Oh, pro- yeah, that's it, Assange. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. okay, so that's it. Which is basically, you know... Continuation of sexuality. Well, it's the, yeah, it's the same, you know, abracadabra game to keep people, you know, yeah. entertained. So, following our last conversation associated with the sun, I don't think I actually knew him. I went back and read his history and read yeah. the stuff associated with that, and I don't think he was a guy that ever crossed paths with me. And certainly the stuff that he was interested in was distinctly different, although the telco companies in Australia were, you know, were a target for a group of people. Um, but no, the, st- the thing that interests me is the lot of, a lot of his language, uh, particularly his political language, 
it's pretty heavily mapped on the 1993 writing. I mean, the use of the term conspiracy, for example. Um, and it does strike me that I don't want this to be seen as almost an opportune publishing book because really, you know, my interest in getting the stuff out there will predate, um, you know, WikiLeaks and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see if there's any representation in that regard. Um, but no, I, he's not a fellow that I don't think I ever had any contact with. But he is an archetype. I mean, I... His... What, I see, I think there's just too damn much talk about him, and exactly. we need to be talking more about the documents. Exactly. Well, <laughs> the what's hell with him? <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. I mean, you, you've heard my view with regards to the whole thing. I think the whole thing is actually... A const- and very much confirmed in terms of the New York Times interaction, it's actually probably a positive PR piece for the U.S. Oh, more I than think ever. it's got to be good. Listen, how can the truth hurt? <laughs> well, no but, no, but here's the interesting thing. It's not the truth. It's the... Wow. Um, it's a particular... Firstly, it's per- well, the thing is, it's giving it to a particular person. We know who these people are. Okay, for so one let's, thing, it's, it's, let's it's look at the military dissident yeah. of itself. The notion that let's look at the U.S. military's perspective associated with just Fallujah as an example, irrespective of the fact matter. The U.S. military grossly underestimated the number of people that were killed in Fallujah. Yeah. In fact, if you take just the independent numbers of dead associated with Fallujah, it's greater than what WikiLeaks said was for the entire Iraq conflict. (laughs) So what actually what actually the releases are is in fact very positive for the U.S. compared to what is probably the reality. Similarly, all the dealings, I mean, it's interesting, the bribery elements associated with, uh, you know, approaching small island nations and things like that, they say, well, you know, what we did was give them aid. Yes. Well, you you know, what you call it, at least we know we're beginning to... That's the beauty of it, is that what's actually going on is there. You know, you can argue about whether it's justified or good or bad or any other <laughs> stuff, but, you know, this is what's happening. I'm really interested what the Bank of America stuff will be, and this is actually probably oh, yeah. more oh. likely why he's, all this stuff is happening to yeah, him. That's right. Yeah, the political it's stuff. The, yeah, but, political yeah. stuff, military stuff, no, yeah. the financial yeah, stuff. Yeah, you don't fuck this, with the banks. <laughs> well, they're cutting off all his funding sources preemptively. Yeah, isn't this interesting? Yeah. The whole damn thing is just amazing. God. You know, I... I well, you know, since I don't watch mass media, is any of this stuff being reported in the media? What's going on on, like, Channel 7 evening news? Do you- I think the whole, my perspective on this, and again, I don't, but I hear snippets through various things that I'm exposed to. The portrayal of him as a fugitive, which in fact has not been the case up until <laughs> the arrest work in the UK, by the US media, I mean, the, the, persp- uh, the part of your um, broad... Um, philosophical uh, persuasion that I'm most sympathetic to, and but it's still a decreasing number, is the effect of the U.S. public in terms of the mass media in this country, no. in terms of just completely just misinformation, just blatant misinformation. And I think the thing that strikes me with the WikiLeaks case in particular is, firstly, there's a lot of hostility because he's actually showing that they're not doing their job. I mean, that's oh, what heavens. he shows. <laughs> explicitly um, but also I think the the relationship between uh, 
Well, this is the interesting thing. You see, when he was when he was doing the military releases, the um, New York Times had to get the clearance with the Pentagon. And when he did the diplomatic releases, they had to get the clearance with the State Department. Now, when do when they do the Bank of America releases, I don't know. Who do they go to? <laughs> Bank of America to get their stuff? I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. But well, Aaron, what do you mean I, they had to go to the State they, Department? That's the condition. That was the condition of the New York Times involvement. That's the curious thing with regards to WikiLeaks, is the whole thing has actually been censored and redacted based on the yeah, U.S. State Department, the U.S. Pen... And this is, this is the thing that's not actively reported. Heron, I'm going to do something absolutely horrible to you here. My wife has had a lingering backache. She's gone out to spend time with her sisters, but she's just returned. So... I, I really would like to cut this recording short if I can, just to tend to her back and various well, other things. how much of an asshole can I be? I don't know. <laughs> Good night. It's been a pleasure, Heron. We'll continue it in a week's time. Let's work on the ad first thing next time we talk. Goodbye. Talk to you soon. Take care.